The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, Tony Hall unveils the BBC's biggest commitment to the arts for a generation. But what does it actually mean? He'll have to do it without Roger Wright, who will step down from Radio 3 and the proms later this year. We run the rule over his legacy and ask what happens next. Plus, it's billed as the biggest TV launch since Channel 5. London Live takes to the airways on the 31st of March. Hit or miss, we talk to its programme director, Jane Moat. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined for the first part of the show by James Robinson, former Observer media editor turned Powers Court PR, and The Guardian's chief arts writer, Charlotte Higgins, making her uh, Media Talk debut. Charlotte, fabulous to have you. Thank you very much, John. <laughs> fabulous to be here. And you got your hair cut specially for the occasion, or is I, that entirely unrelated? No, that's specially for the occasion, because hair looks great on the radio. Brilliant. And James, this is also great on the radio, looking smart as ever with, uh, hang on, Alexander McQueen tie, I believe. Yes, that's right. You did ask, didn't you? Don't give it away. <laughs> I was pretending I recognised it. Yeah, no, it's, it's a design classic already, actually. Pictures on the, the blog? spring there. Yes. With your permission? Yeah, of course. Yeah, no if problem. they don't appear, he said no. Right, OK, first up, uh, we are going to go to the BBC and Tony Hall's big deal. Nope, nothing to do with the licence fee, although we'll talk about that later, no doubt. But the extra £3 million he's going to spend to put more arts programmes on the BBC than ever before, he says. So what do you get for your money? Well, more Shakespeare? a sequel to Kenneth Clark's Civilization, Gemma Arterton in the Duchess of Malfi, and a so-called front-row seat at arts events around the country, in partnership with people like the Hay Festival, Glyndebourne, the Royal Academy, the Globe Theatre, the list goes on. But uh, more details on the Guardian website. Helping him do this are the National Theatre's Nicholas Heitner, who will become a non-executive director of the BBC, no less, and the Tate's Nicholas Sorota, who will lead a sounding board of the great and the good to make sure the BBC knows its arts from its elbow. Ba-boom. Uh, that will include, thank you, James, that will include the Royal Court's uh, Vicky Featherstone, among many others. Tony Hall's announcement this week comes just a fortnight after he sounded the death knell for BBC Three. The DG said how important it was that he reached children and young people with the arts. So I asked him, now he's going to axe BBC Three as a TV channel, how did those two things marry up? Uh, number one, um, on BBC Three, we're beginning to get together a group of people to say, what does BBC Three um, online on the iPlayer uh, look like? and the arts will be a a, a part of that discussion. Never underestimate the power of BBC One. You know, BBC One is the best way to get to all audiences. And by saying that the One Show um, and others are going to do things which will involve people in the arts is a very powerful statement, I think, uh, of intent by the BBC. But can I make one other point, which is, to me, is really keen. What I'm hoping today is, we're saying that the BBC, working with arts organisations and artists, something we're really good at in this country, to give people wherever they might be, across the country, rich or poor, whatever background they they, they come from, access to what uh, is something that this country is exceptionally good at. And I think that's a profound democratic purpose of both artists and arts organisations, the BBC, working together. So I was brought up on Merseyside. Civilization, I remember very well then, reinventing civilization for this age is important to me, but it's giving people access to things they otherwise would not have access to is vital. 
and simulcast and broadcast of live events has been done before, and more, I guess, on Sky Arts than the BBC, but they don't necessarily wait rate well, and I get the impression from executives that they don't necessarily enjoy doing them too much. I mean, but what kind of ambition have you got for the ratings, and what will you see as a success or a failure? I'm, I'm not going to give figures for, for access. I mean, what I hope is that we will reach, over the year, many, many more people than we currently are, with the scale of, of what we're putting forward. Um, and that's both online, on iPlayer, on BBC TV and BBC Radio. But I think the point is made very powerfully by Nick Heitner. You know, when you think, oh, 200,000 people watch something, you have to divide that by 2,000 and say, that is a huge number of performances that you would have to do at the National Theatre or the Royal Opera House or Eno or the South Bank or whatever it happens to be. You're giving people access to things they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And I think, I go back, that is a really uh, important point. Then we use our creativity as programme makers to get as many people uh, interested as we can. That was Tony Hall there speaking at a uh, very busy-sounding new broadcasting house. Charlotte, what, what do you make of this? Well, I'm an arts person, John, so I think it's fantastic. I think it's basically fantastic. This is the sort of rhetoric that really appeals to me. It's incredibly high-minded. Uh, it's almost Rethian. It is, we will give the people stuff of extraordinary quality and they will reach up and come to it and we're not going to patronise them and decide that poor people just want to watch The Voice. Uh, and I think this sort of knitting culture and the arts firmly into you know things like The One Show is wonderful. Um, if they can really pull off a new civilization, that would be... Really fantastic. By the way, I think there's only one person who could present it properly, and it's Neil McGregor. And it might just be nice timing because he'll probably retire from the British Museum at the end of this year. That's the rumour. So I suspect, uh, I mean, you know, that, that's my, my hunch, is that he, he will be the person to do it. Arguably, the BBC has been very lacklustre and timid about presenting arts in the theatre and on the stage on its screens for the past 15, 20 years. And, you know, arguably this is about um, really um, fulfilling the BBC's public service obligations. I think my slight caveat would be that this is very much a Tony Hall vision. If you'd asked me to predict what Tony would have come up with, um, give me a piece of paper, I would have named more or less the names that he has named. Give this is very much... the former chief exactly, of the Royal this, Opera House. Yeah. Exactly so, exactly so. Tony's this is, a, this is a real... Exactly. This is an Opera House vision of British arts, and it may be... Well, in fact, I'm hearing little disenfranchised voices already from smaller, more avant-garde, perhaps more interesting arts organisations who are thinking, what's in this for me? You know, how am I going to get the audience to my tiny theatre on a Friday night when the RSC is on the screen... You know, so I think the BBC's got to be jolly careful about how it how it handles that, and and not just work with the with the behemoths, with the really the big hitters, the RSC, the National Theatre, and so on. And James, uh, no surprise, as Charlotte said, that given his background, he's come up with this sort of thing. But also, you can imagine it will go down very well with the opinion formers and the, the chattering classes and Westminster. And this will, uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that this is happening at the same time as you know charter renewal kicks off. And, yeah, that's uh, you know, true. I mean, but it's it is a big uh, bargaining chip. Yeah, and yeah, the one constituency you didn't mention in that list was the licence fee payers, funnily enough. But I know I agree, essentially. I mean, as a nation, we should play to our strengths. This is what we do brilliantly. Uh, there is a movement anyway towards screening live shows, live theatre performances, not just on TV, but direct to homes. Of course, we've all got, you know, many of us have got the, new, the kit now. We've got huge tellies and great, you know, it's a great experience to watch those sort of productions from, from home. I know there's companies that specialise in doing this, that, you know, the, this house, the last... Um, 
production of this house, the final night of this house, went out to cinemas globally, and I think the same has been true of other productions. So it is a great, it is a, it is a great thing, and that's what that, I'm supportive of. That I just hope. I mean, reflecting something that Charlotte said, I mean, it'd be nice if they did. You know, they didn't just restrict this to London. I mean, there are great theatres outside of London. It would be. It, I think it'd be very helpful for license and, and license fee payers would appreciate it you know from the the birmingham rep or the whatever you know the, the bigger theaters outside london where there's a lot of good productions running it would just be you know being as the license fee is paid by all of us around the country i mean i don't know if that is the plan i don't know if all these productions are going to come from you know london and stratford or whether there's i think there is some diversity wider. in there james but it's it tends to be the sort of big famous already very successful companies that have so far been named so i'd like to see mm. i'd like to see a bit more diversity yeah, why not and, and before we leave it uh, charlotte I should say a big old role for nicholas heitner who's no, who's going to become a, a non-executive director uh, on the bbc board he's going to advise it on uh, bbc vision charter renewal on drama and he might even make some bbc dramas himself so it's kind of uh, you know he's going to be an, an enormously influential figure going forward absolutely and of course he's about to leave the uh, national theater he's about to set up his own independent commercial company so it's brilliant timing for him again I just hesitate about this slightly closed circle of very powerful mostly men in the arts that Tony is allied to and and I would like to see it become a bit broader in its vision well uh, Nick Hunt is going to join the BBC but someone who's leaving is uh, Roger Wright Uh, He is the controller of uh, Radio 3 and is uh, in charge of the proms, of course. He's leaving the corporation after 15 years to take charge of Aldborough Music at the Festival and Performance Arts Centre in Suffolk. Charlotte, what do you make of what's the the Roger Wright legacy at Radio 3? Well, Roger, I think, has been a pretty good controller of Radio 3. He's done... There have been some sort of terrific moments. He's done these wonderful events on Radio 3, so these really bold things. So let's hear, you know, they did a week where nothing but the music of Bach, the complete works of Bach were heard. That was absolutely wonderful. They did the same thing with Schubert and other composers. I mean, those have been great, very bold moments. I mean, the problem with Radio 3 is that it's always this sort of push-me-pull-you. They move towards the audience too much and make it too chatty and bantery. That annoys part of the audience you pull it back and make it lofty, incredibly lofty and superior, and that annoys another part of the audience. And it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky uh, thing to pull off. The fun part of the job is always the proms part. You know, programming two months of symphony concerts in the Albert Hall, notably with a lot of money to do so, not like programming things outside the lovely world of the BBC, but in the cold, dark world of kind of tricky funding in, in the rest of the arts world is magnificent and I think uh, I think Roger's been more keen on that part of the job than the, the Radio 3 part of the job recently. James are you, uh, are you a Radio 3 man, Classic FM or uh, more LBC these days? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I'm, I'm slowly shuffling towards Magic FM <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we no, all? no, um, you know, yeah, I'm not an expert on classical music, that's for sure. Roger Wright arrived, BBC Three played classical music. Roger Wright left, BBC Three played classical music. Yeah, that's the extent. But it was the problems. Or even Radio it? Three. <laughs> oh, sorry, Radio Three played classical music. Shut up, James. Radio Three goes um, online only. Now that would be a yeah, that would that, that would, would be, a step. be a huge earthquake in my house. Um, there so, are these sort of hilarious talk boards with Radio Three audiences. There are lots of Radio Three forums which is a very strange world, I can tell you, of um, classical Radio 3 listeners. And they all think that Roger is the devil incarnate and are sort of dancing on his grave. I think this is all nonsense. Presumably Classic FM is just the the main thing that... I'm assuming that the main thing the controller of Radio 3 has to think about every morning is is Classic FM and what Classic FM's doing or how Classic FM has changed their 
classical music market. Or well, not. there was that accusation. Isn't, yeah, that, isn't, that, that, isn't, that, isn't that their main competitor? I imagine secretly that is the case, although I'm sure Roger would vividly deny that and say mm. that we are so distinct from, from Classic FM, which is about sticking records on. Yeah. Classic FM would be annoyed with that characterisation too, but that's basically the case. Whereas Radio 3 is about liveness, it's about its yeah. orchestras, it's about introducing, Events. and it's about introducing mm. the audience to um, composers that aren't, you know, Pachelbel and Mozart, you know, it's yeah. about stretching the audience. And it's also the sort of intellectual heart, um, even more so in a way than Radio 4 of the BBC and its spoken word output. Mm. But it's an interesting, who will take it on? Mm. Radio 3 is just a less interesting job than the proms. So there is a, mm. there's a question about whether they would couple or decouple those jobs. Perhaps it's a bit distinct from other parts of the BBC in that people who exist in the arts world kind of, you know, historically have come in and run the network. So I think one name is Stephen Maddock, who currently runs the um, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, but was in the BBC earlier in his career. He's the sort of person who might come in and do one or both of those jobs. Well, my thanks to Charlotte there. And that's almost it for part one. But before we move on, this week saw the launch of a new campaign group called Diversity, with an event, you guessed it, on diversity in the media. Coming off the back of Lenny Henry's BAFTA lecture on ring fence funding for black, Asian and minority ethnic talent last week, Media Talk decided to drop in and hear what guests had to say. My name is Dotson Adebayo. I'm a book publisher. I work for Express Books. I only wish Lenny had said it 20 years ago. He claims he said it before, but I don't remember him saying it until he wasn't the top entertainer in Britain anymore. Now anything that Lenny says is behind the curve. The kids have already experienced it, so he's only saying things other people know already. My name's Joanne Fuller. I'm a freelance TV producer and a broadcaster. I think until we have quotas, until we enforce quotas, we're not going to get anywhere. Nobody's ever going to do it off their own back. They haven't. I know a couple of people that were involved in putting that together, Kwame Kweema and Marcus Ryder from the BBC. I just believe that quotas is the way forward. I think it's the only way to go now. My name's Tammy Hoffman. I'm interviews editor at Sky News. There is a huge amount to do to get greater representation, not just of people from ethnic minorities, but also economic diversity. And also we'd like to hear from more young people and more older people rather than the sort of mass in the middle. In terms of internships, since the beginning of 2013, the Sky News graduate internship programme, uh, the criteria from that has been that it's only open for people from either an ethnic minority or uh, people who come from uh, an economically deprived background. And once we've got the applicants, then it's totally meritocratic, but at least it means that we're widening the pool of people that we're attracting to Sky News in the first place. My name is Leon John-Baptiste. Um, I've just recently set up a website, houseofblack.co.uk. My issue is if diversity schemes actually lead to encouraging diversity within mainstream media, because I've been through the whole diversity scheme process, and it's gotten me into the door of the industry. Um, but once you get into a mainstream media company, you're in off the merit that you're, for example, black, but then the diverse experience that you have from your own life is not encouraged, it's not invited to, to add towards development, towards creativity. So what, what ends up happening is you end up blending and becoming like everybody else that's already there. So then the whole point of the diversity scheme in the first place becomes irrelevant. It's time now to talk London Live, the capital's very own local TV station, bankrolled by Evgeny and Alexander Lebedev, owners, of course, of the Independent and London Evening Standard. 
Part of the Lebedev's multi-platform efforts to appeal to as wide a London audience as possible, they're expected to spend up to £18 million on the venture before it breaks even in three years' time. There's been no shortage of scepticism about the local TV project, the brainchild of former Culture Secretary Jamie Hunt, of course, now looking after the NHS, and London Live has inevitably borne the brunt of some of that. Jane Mote, its launch programme director, joins us in the studio now. Jane, thanks for coming. You're very welcome. Busy times. It is, yes. Um, Tell us why the cynics have got it wrong. Well, first of all, you use the word local constantly in your introduction, which Uh is natural given that it's a local TV licence, but we don't see it as local TV. We see it as London TV. And London is the most exciting city in the world. It has a very vibrant and large population. And I believe that we can make a huge commercial and viewing success of what we're doing. And so if if any of these projects is going to work, it's going to be London because you've got... Well, what's the potential audience? How many people can get... Oh, well, we'll nine get million, get live come, nine million come 31st can receive us in London. Um, so we'll be viewed on television on Channel 8 on Freeview, which is fantastic real estate, 117 on Sky and 159 on Virgin. And across the country, people will see us online because we'll be streamed. So come launch night. I'll, I'll say it once more, 31st of March. Yes, thank uh, you. That's Monday. <laughs> Monday, contractually obliged. Um, so what, what can we see? What, 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 what can viewers expect to see when they, when they switch on at, um, what, was it half past six? When do you, when do you get oh, to air? That's a really good question. Have we actually said yet? We will certainly be on air at 6.30. We're hoping to, we'll be starting, <laughs> exclusively reveal that we start a countdown from 6pm. And then we will be on air with our entertainment show, uh, London Go, which gives you entertainment news live from a queue near you. So we'll be out in London live, which is obviously quite appropriate for the title of the station. And then we'll be uh, running our irreverent news show, Not The One Show, at uh, seven o'clock. And then we're into our full entertainment schedule with factual lifestyle content, Food Junkies, F2 Kicks Off, um, some of our uh, great comedy shows, and then going to music. And then we've got uh, the Raw scene, which is um, a lot of our YouTube pluses, some great YouTube content that's been transformed into great TV content. So not the one show. Will you just sort of advise me that it's not the one show or is it called not the one show? It is called not the one show. It's on at the same time as the one show. So we didn't want people to be confused. Um, yeah. Is that a bit like not the nine o'clock news from the, from the 80s? Or? Well, you know, we are really determined that our news programmes will have an entertainment sensibility. We think a lot of news is quite po-faced and London isn't like that. And we want our news shows to really feel like they're part of the London Live brand. So there is a practical use to the title because it's... It's very clearly telling people the time it's on and what it isn't. But there's also, yes, a definite sense of irreverence about how we cover the news. That doesn't mean that news within it isn't uh, lacking in credibility, but there will be many funny and humorous takes on on the day's agenda. Uh, And coming from a queue near you. Yeah, well, What's that's a terrible buzz phase, isn't it? I can't well, remember. that's yeah, not like I a cash point that. queue. That's uh, something yeah, more yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's about being out where there are premieres, where things are happening in London, and we're also very determined to get out of the West End. We will cover big West End events because we'll be expected to. That's part of the buzz of being a Londoner, is to feel like, you know, that's, that's your city that's hosting all of that, and you can see the stars, and we'll bring them um, through to you on television. But we'll also be at venues that are, are less known, and we will be making sure that fresh talent gets to air. And that's actually a huge part of the the channel's remit, is to bring fresh talent to the air in everything that we do. So we've got some amazing new faces in in our comedies and our dramas, but also in the news agenda. James, what do you make of London Live? What what, what are your thoughts on its prospects? Yeah, no, well, I think it's exciting because, um, obviously, because it's been a while since we've had a new TV channel, London is is big enough to support 
a channel of its own, I think, I hope. I'm assuming that the cost of producing a TV channel and producing content generally has fallen uh, from what it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago, which must help. I mean, I think it's so tricky, isn't it, when you're launching such an exciting new project, you want to talk about it, you need to talk about it. But at the same time, you're you're setting yourself up for well, I hate to say it but but, you, but it's very difficult to, you've, you've got the hype but then you have to deliver I think it's all the, a lot of the most successful media ventures sort of evolve almost out of sight and they don't start almost being watched or listened to or read until they're until they've ironed out all the, the mistakes they've made I think it's very challenging to well, to make your mistakes in public and I think um and the fact that you're owned by a media organization might mean that other media organizations take a slightly snooty view of, of what it is you're trying to achieve. That, that, I think that's, I, a, I think that's, that's very challenge. astute. And I think in the modern day of media, a lot of media operations have beta and then they have iterative approaches. Yeah. And actually, a lot of what we do will be very transparent with the audience. So this is where we're starting at with our launch. And there'll be lots of new things rolling out after that. So what you see on launch night isn't going to be the end of, mm. a, uh, end of our growth and, and our ambition. Yeah. There's masses more to come. But on the other side, I think people have been, especially our commercial backers, have been really surprised at the scale of our ambition. So to launch with some really big titles from BBC and Channel 4, you know, Misfits and Peep Show and 2012, which is very top at the moment with you know mm. w1a just coming out yeah. they've been quite surprised well you're, you're buying that sort of stuff and i think some of the other broadcasts we've talked to really i like, you know they're actually starting to get a bit worried so we're mixing those really iconic titles with to, to give a halo and to try to mm. bring people in to some of our new newer titles and then i think they'll be surprised just about the quality of talent that does exist that isn't getting to screen and a lot of people that we're going to be putting on air have been knocking on the doors of the mainstream broadcasters for a long time yeah. spending a lot of their time and money trying to woo them and you know we had Alex Zane at our launch party last night and and he said in one of our pilots we talked to your commissioners they were enthusiastic and within two weeks we were filming it's unheard of in television so we're working at a speed and things will go right and things will go wrong but the excitement will be huge and we need to keep that up well the other thing that I think London's lacking is it doesn't with all due respect to the Evening Standard I don't think there are many publications or shows or media properties generally that do showcase the the capital in all its incredible diversity so that if you can tap into any of that vibrancy which I'm sure you is the idea I think you could have you know very very exciting product but it is tough though isn't it when people have tried tab for the want of a better phrase tabloid tv news before you know like channel five tried to do it uh you know with the uh, sort of between six and seven o'clock, but it, it didn't get big numbers. You know, people kind of say they want a, more of a kind of show busy tabloid TV news, but when you give it to them, they, 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 they don't necessarily lap it up. I don't see it as show busy or tabloid. It's smart, and I don't think people have done that. It, it's it's smart and it's fun and and it's sort of inside London, and so it has a a built in loyalty because we're coming from the Londoners' perspective on it, which I don't think you get on a national station either. So I, 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 it's definitely not going to be tabloidy. Okay. When you do the football scores, can you make sure that you don't just do Arsenal, Chelsea and uh, well, Funny enough, West you should mention because... Soccer AM because we've got a show, that our football show is going to be called 14 to 1 and Kaj Sohal, who used to be head of um, football at BBC, is our exec producer on it and the whole show is about democracy of football. So all the 14 league teams in London will get equal time on that show well, and it's, it's run by the fans, nice. for the fans. It'll be London's first true football well, show. That's fair enough, but that's, that sounds great, but my point, Marie, was more that that London being so cosmopolitan, there's probably more Man United fans or even Legion yeah, fans than well, there are you know, you know, West Ham should, fans or Charlton fans. They but. should support their locals. 
Jane, yeah, before you get it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole other area. Tune into Football Weekly Podcast on The Guardian. <laughs> Not uh, a specialist on the subject. <laughs> now, they're, they're, they're all your children, of course, but give us one show. If, if, if people oh. only tune into one show on London Live uh, next week. That's really difficult. I can't it can't be one that. you've already mentioned. I can't do that. Just give okay. us personal highlight. Well, it's yours, isn't it? Media talk, isn't it? Is that on London Live? Oh, well, I'll tell you what. Um, we can talk syndication I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one that I really, really love, Brothers With No Game, which is in... Let's the, try and guess what that is. James, uh, okay, what, do you, what do you think yeah. that programme is? Brothers With No Game. He's Brothers no With No Game. I've got no is idea. Is that going to work on the EPG? That's my worry. It, it, is, it is a comedy written by a sound engineer and a office worker who developed it online on YouTube and it's an amazing comedy, really warm comedy, which is in our raw section about four lads who can't seem to get a girlfriend. Okay. And it's yeah, lovely. It's a sounds... lovely little town. It's beautifully made and uh, it's got some really interesting new production ideas in it. It's brand new talent and we've got a lot of shows like that um, which really catch your attention. Okay. Well, Jane, mate, remind us again, when does the countdown begin? Six o'clock on Monday. 31st of March. 31st of Fantastic. March. Fantastic. Well, very much. we will be watching. Jane Moat, thank you very much. Right, it's time now for some news in brief. Uh, it's just me and James for this bit. It's like a sort of a, the fashionable phrase, James, I believe, is a fireside chat. Uh, yeah, fireside uh, chat. Lovely. Fireside chat. I'll well, we'll pull, pull up myself a, a brandy. No, just fizzy water for me. Uh, first, it's back to the BBC. And is it the end of the licence fee as we know it? Uh, Tory MP Andrew Bridgen's amendment ushering in a, a year-long review of the possible decriminalisation of non-payment of the charge won unanimous cross-party support in a Commons committee last week. Both sides claimed victory. I think the BBC were just glad that it didn't happen overnight, uh, while the uh, corporation's critics uh, were, were delighted to um, put this debate front and centre of the uh, of the chat about charter renewal. James, what do you reckon? Is this going to happen? Or uh, I mean, it's, it's been talked about before, and it, and it never has come around because people can't come up with a with a better alternative. But do, is this uh, beginning of the end? It's very clever tactically from the BBC's critics to push this as a. You know, this measure through seize on um, a weak point yeah no it's it's quite interesting. so I do feel sorry for the BBC in that sense because it, it's just a very clever way of undermining the BBC but you know they need some sort of penalty there because you can't switch it off like you can as they well, keep saying like indeed, gas electricity indeed you know. they do keep saying that but, but if you don't pay your bills you get a credit bad credit score and you you know it, it has got a penalty it does have ramifications you get fines presumably um, you just don't go to prison so and and the fact the bottom line is if it, it, make it good enough that people Want to pay. That's the point, isn't it? Uh, next up in this news, not entirely in brief section, uh, Faisal Islam was the uh, surprise successor to Adam Bolton as uh, Sky News political editor. Uh, Islam is currently economics editor at Channel 4 News. Uh, and this was quite intriguing, James, in the sense that uh, Sky didn't go for the safe bet, who presumably would have been Bolton's deputy, um, Joey Jones. What, what did you make of the appointment? <laughs> I mean, Faisal's an old colleague of mine. I used to work with him at The Observer for a long time, so I'm slightly biased. But I think it's a great choice. It's a very difficult job because everyone, you know, what Sky demand is being first, as we all know. You have to be first. Difficult, very difficult to sit there breaking stories on a live, the same time as doing a live 24-hour news feed job. It's, it's tough. And Faisal will be great. And I think it's brilliant the way that, you know, Sky, what, five, six years ago, I'm pretty sure it was an all-male political team. Now it's female and non-white. They've got Ashgur Thana, who's an ex-observer as well at Sky, as well as Faisal. And Sophie Ridge, who's a great female reporter. It's, it's great. Good for John Riley for um, shaking things up. I'm, I'm really excited about it, actually. It's time to talk TV now, and I'm joined by Megan Connor, who is the uh, the Guardian's acting TV and radio editor. Megan, hello. Hello. You're stepping into the shoes of uh, Rebecca Nicholson. I am, just for a wee while, yes. 
not just on the pod, but in the across the entire multi-platform Guardian. The entire Guardian television. Well, it's yes. very good of you to uh, join us. So first up this week, let's start off with, uh, what do you reckon, BBC Two's Line of Duty, which has been a real phenomenon. It's been amazing. I, I didn't watch the first series at all, uh, so came into this thinking I wouldn't know what the hell was going on. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> Reassuring. It's so complicated, but that is why it is so brilliant, I think. It's been really a really great role for Keely Hawes, who I was always a fan of, but felt was quite underused. It's a shame it's ended. I think everyone is looking to fill that void now. Uh, we need something gripping, something that's going to challenge us every week. Yeah, it was good. I mean, I watched the first, I'm, I'm the opposite of you, which is handy because we cover off both bases. I saw the first series, uh, I didn't watch the second. Oh, right. And I kind of figured the first series was felt like it would be very hard to to beat, to capitalise on, but they seem to do it. You know, they, they, they topped it. I feel like the second series is much more talked about than the first. Is that because it's better or because it's just sort of the build-up of having the first one and everyone was really looking forward to the second one? It's because they killed off. Was it Jessica Raines in the first episode? They did. That's what got quite, people talking. Quite brutally. Thrown out of a window. Brilliant. It's the spooks tactic of, of uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, the surprise. Very but, true, yeah. Uh, and will there be a third series? Do we know that yet? It's already been commissioned. It's, it's interesting because Jed Mercurio, everyone's starting to dig up some of his earlier work now. And I know that they're on iTunes you can get access to Bodies, which um, was a Doctor drama which stars Max Beasley. But a lot of people are sort of, yeah, people are looking it up and... And kind of seeing a bit more of what he's all about, which is great because he is just brilliant. And he's written a, uh, he's gone back to the, that topic or medical drama, I think, for BBC, for um, Sky. Yes, that's uh, right. There's a new Sky series coming Sky Atlantic out. Or, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but that's what I think will take his attention first and then he'll return to Line of Duty. Great. Okay. Well, you mentioned there's a need, there's a crying need for some sort of demanding drama, maybe with subtitles, uh, to fill the gap of uh, Line of Duty. And more for might have it. They might do. It's called Mammon. Uh, Terrible title. Carry on. <laughs> it actually means greed. This is a Norwegian drama, actually, which is quite nice. We've had Scandi drama, um, you know, from, from various other countries, and this is their sort of first really great big commission that's gone worldwide, I think. Um, the US are making their own version of it at the moment. Inevitably. They've got rights to. Uh, and there's a second series of this already commissioned. It's been described as a sort of Norwegian state of play, um, it's really gripping. It's it's also very confusing. So it has that in common with Line of Duty. The first episode is quite baffling. Um, it's basically about a bunch of journalists. Um, I love news- it already. A newspaper reporter breaks a major fraud story um, and it kind of has repercussions for his own family. Um, so there's one kind of main guy reporter at the centre of this and his brother, which is quite interesting because it's written by two brothers as well. And so people that are kind of trying to draw comparisons to the bridge, all those other kind of Scandi dramas, they all very much have women at the heart of them. And I think this is this is the guy's turn to kind of entertain us. So um, I'm, you know, it's beautifully shot. It's really the dialogue is great. And it's Channel Four as well. You mentioned the comparisons with the with the killing and whatever. I think Channel Four are unashamedly piling in with some of their marketing, saying you know after the bridge, after the killing, after Borgen, you know, it comes. Mammon. So uh, maybe they beat yeah. BBC Four to the punch here. Maybe uh, uh, in terms of you know snapping up a decent. Definitely, they're, they're drum. really excited about it. It's going to be on Friday nights. Um, it starts this Friday, uh, and we're going to be doing on the website. We're going to be doing some series recaps just so we can try and unpick the events. That's I mean, a massive vote of confidence from the Guardian. There. <laughs> the so. first episode, I just had no. You're just trying to work it out. You're focusing so hard on working things out. 
Um, but yeah, BBC Four are kind of getting in on the act with their with another acquisition of their own, um, completely different. Inspector De Luca um, is an Italian detective series based on some novels, uh, and that is very different, much gentler pace. It's got a kind of old-fashioned glamour to it. Uh, the detective wears a fedora and goes around on a on a push bike, so that's that's a kind of bit of light relief. But a lovely watch, I think. So that's one that's worth looking out for as well. And talking of light relief, uh, or, or indeed light relief, uh, W1A, this was the BBC spoof, started on BBC Two uh, last week. Uh, now, I watched 10 minutes before uh, I hurled my uh, iPhone out of the, the moving uh, train window. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> was it better for you? Do you know what? I, I was underwhelmed by it. I think a lot of people were. That was the sort of general criticism and... You know, there there was a cameo from Carol Vorderman and there will go on to be another cameo in the next episode. And I think people just felt it was a bit tired. We've seen that in extras. We've seen this kind of mockumentary, office mockumentary going on in the office years ago. It just fell a bit flat, really, the first episode. But having seen the rest of the series, I can tell you that it does get better. Episode two is probably the funniest for me. And, you know, we start to sort of build up the characters a little. It takes quite a while you, you're in episode four, really, before you start to kind of care about anyone. But so you're saying I should go and retrieve my iPhone from yeah, somewhere between should. Radlett and uh, Boronwood? You should, and this may be a major spoiler, but 2012 fans will definitely want to watch episode four. Oh, right. Well, that's, that's not a spoiler. That's just, that's my, <laughs> you've piqued my curiosity. Uh, that's right. Serious link that straight away. Uh, and uh, finally, well, you know, we can't, um, what well, we can, but we're not going to, we can't leave this podcast without talking about The Voice. On BBC One, which Yay. appears to be <laughs> <laughs> appears to be, despite you know Kylie, uh, that chap off the Kaiser Chiefs, whatever, it's still as soon as this chair stops swiveling, it dies a hideous death. <laughs> Is that fair? I think the voice has well and truly died, and I think the live shows that started last weekend, you know, there's quite a bit of anticipation around those. In the previous two series, it's where the series has fallen flat, and you really depend on the contestants to have charisma at that stage because that, that that's all that's left and I just think you know the staging of it I know everyone kind of puts the boot into the x factor but this is just so bland <laughs> so bland even Kylie can't save it I'd love I think she's brilliant I'd love her to be able to save it but I don't think it's possible a suggestion's there to give Tom Jones a, a nudge to be a bit more interesting because everyone just loved every act which doesn't <laughs> make for great tv does it you know feel good only goes so far yeah I mean it's it's interesting the new presenters you know, Kylie, there were lots of reasons why you could really over, overhaul it and give it a, a new lease of life. But I think we've all come to the conclusion that unless you entirely change the concept, it's not going to work. OK, great. Well, I'm looking forward to the fourth series already. <laughs> uh, brilliant. Well, for now, Megan Connor, thank you very much. Thank you. Right. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to all our guests who were James Robinson, Megan Connor, Charlotte Higgins and, of course, Jane Moat. You can leave your thoughts on the Media Talk blog, or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. The programme is produced, as ever, by the estimable Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. 
Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.